Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Stephen Garber, Professor of Marketplace Theology and Leadership at Regent College. Stephen, welcome. Tell me something good. Scott, it's good to be with you today after so many years, of course. So, something good today. Um, my grandson, uh, Toddy, we call him, though he has a longer, more complicated name, but he prefers Toddy, who's five years, almost five years old right now. But he learned how to ride a bicycle today. And he lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. And Yay. he sent me a video of that. And I was happy for him because I know that even though I'm no longer five years old, I still have ride a bicycle and hope he does for a long, long time in his life. I think that's that's a major formative moment. Bicycles are magical in many ways and imaginative in many ways as well. That's true. Um, talk to me a little bit about Professor of Marketplace Theology. I hear Agora. What are the roles that you play as a professor of Marketplace Theology? So it's a good question, Scott, and it's not a very typical position to have, obviously. Um, but from the founding days of Regent College, probably the best story that can be told about it would be that it was founded to be a place where somebody could learn to be as theologically mature as they were professionally competent. Mm -hmm. And I would say those words are the words I repeated, you know, probably a thousand times since I've been here for a few years. Um, as theologically matures, you are professionally competent. And uh, so to be a place where somebody like me could teach, I stand in the shoulders of other people before me, most notably uh, Paul Stevens, who has been here for as long as anybody has been at Regent College. And he's in his 80s now, but he still teaches courses each year. And people love to learn from him. And I have learned from him and have learned to love him very much. Um, but marketplace theology, we could maybe just play with the words a bit and say that's the theology of the marketplace. Uh, and it's the argument actually that, um, that who we are, why we are, what we do with our lives matters to God and to the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that we got to take that seriously and be as thoughtful about that and uh, pr purposeful about that as we are becoming professionally competent in the various roles we have, whether we're butchers or bakers or candlestick makers or <laughs> we're in the arts or entertainment or politics or law or business or, you know, wherever we're in the world. So that's the vision behind it. And I teach cor a course every year on vocation, the meaning of vocation. It's an historical look at the meaning of vocation over the 20 centuries of the church's life. It's lost reading a variety of books week by week. Sometimes they're novels, sometimes they're history, sometimes they're theology. Uh, I often invite people to come into the class with me in a Zoom kind of Skype conversation sometimes um, to incarnate the questions of the, of the week and the book we're reading for that week. Um, I teach a course on the gospel and culture, which is really looking at uh, what does it mean to live in a pluralizing, secularizing, and globalizing world? And what, what, do, what we believe about God and the world have to do with the world we live in? So that's a lot of what I do. Um, I want to walk back a bit. I think I was first introduced to you about 30 years ago in Washington, D.C. as part of the American Studies program. Um, 
which is and, amazing. Think about Scott, but it yeah, is cool. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lot, lots of water in that under that bridge and through that bridge and over that bridge. I want to I want to ask this question, but I also want to set it up to talk about a few things about that program. This is a podcast, Learning Matters: A Bridge to Practice, and one of the fun parts I that I like about these conversations is asking people to reflect upon and share influential teachers that they've had in their lives, either inside or outside of the classroom. One, just to recognize we all come from places and legacies and shoulders that we do stand on. So Stephen, I'm wondering if there's a, an influential teacher that you particularly would like to uh, give a shout out. I could name many, of course, Scott, and some are competing in my mind right now for, shall I talk about this one or that one or this one over here too? But I think maybe most simply, because it's really where I began this book, The Seamless Life, it's my grandfather, um, who I would say was quite influential as a teacher to me. He grew up in an agricultural world in the early 20th century, uh, went, to, went to college, got married, had my mother and first of five daughters. Uh, the depression came, his preparation and desire to be a math, math teacher and a principal of a school turned it back to the agricultural world where he could make more money and uh, spent the rest of his life, 50 or 60 years really, in buying and selling cattle in Colorado. And, uh, but I would say that I had the great gift from my grandfather of learning in a way that I've come to think is most important over his shoulder and through his heart. Mm. And uh, so he allowed me to spend days with him and summers with him and watching him in his work. And, and uh, um, this idea actually of aura a labora that I've written about, and we, you and I have talked about, yeah. I would say was captured by my grandfather quite personally and, and profoundly um, because he allowed me to see that in fact that a person could be, uh, to use the language of Regent College, to, could be as you know, theologically mature as were, they were professionally competent. And uh, he was in his own day and didn't go to Regent College or anyplace else like that, but he had undergraduate studies and was theologically serious about his life, and, but also quite deeply involved in the cattle markets of Colorado. And uh, I can say more about all that, but I would say that my grandfather's willingness to buy me ice cream cones and lemonade on a hot afternoon, summer afternoon and walk with him through, you know, the pens and corrals of Colorado looking at cattle and watching him make the choices he did and the judgment that he, that he made was quite influential to me because at the same time, I knew that night by night, he literally got on his knees leading me and the rest of my cousins and uh, in prayer for the way the world was and the way the world ought to be. And somehow there was a marriage in him of uh, this vision of aura a labora that's become quite deep to me over time. So I'm hoping, and I want to ask, you know, I, I, I had the uh, honor and privilege of being able to study with Calvin Seerveld. And Cal would talk about wanting to hear the written word. Um, I would love it if you would read from the chapter, maybe Aura at Labora, which is, uh, I believe, page 45 for those who may be listening at home. But uh, I would love it if you could read that chapter. Sure, I can do that, Scott. Um, and we have a contemplative life and still live in Washington, D.C., San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Angelo, or how about Los Angeles or San Francisco or Sacramento or Shafter? Do we have to leave life to find our lives? 
For the desert fathers and mothers in the early centuries of Anno Domini, on through the escapes to, to Big Sur for the promise of high-priced Buddhism in our own day, we imagine it impossible to be people with an interior life who can account for the complexity and challenge of our exterior lives. The world seems too much for us. To live in it, but not be of it, seems beyond our ability. Can we pray and work, ora e labora, at the same time? St. Benedict began a long tradition of reflection on this almost 1,500 years ago. Discouraged by the cultural implosion of his own day, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, he took up a life of disciplines that would keep his heart while he cared for the world. The hallmark of this Benedictine tradition was ora e labora, a life where praying and working were held together, offered as one heart and therefore one life. They stumbled in their own way, from what I can read, and no one since then figured out how to do it with final clarity. We keep stumbling, longing for more coherent lives, where what we confess to believe looks like the way we actually live, where our deepest hearts are seamlessly worked out in the responsibilities and relationships of our lives. Several years ago, we were working on this at a retreat called A Contemplative Life for the Rest of Life, at a place known far and wide as a thin place, where heaven and earth meet in a remarkable way. In fact, to find one's way in requires the willingness to enter in the waters of the Rio Frio, and I don't know what else to call it other than a sacramental experience, a baptizing of one's imagination, where the eyes of the heart are opened to see in a new way, at least if one has eyes to see. As a young man, Howard E. Butt of the HEB Grocery Company in Texas wanted a place to work out, work at this very question. Can I pray and work at the same time? And because of hopes and resources that were his, he brought the Lady Lodge into being along the banks of the Rio Frio Canyon 60 years ago. And for generations now, it's opened its doors with an unusual hospitality. And now I've taken up this question and asked one more time, reflecting on the complexity of its challenge, offering the insights of Augustine of Hippo and John Bunyan and Margaret Magdalene and Alexander Schmemann, of William Wilberforce, Abraham Kuyper, and Leo Tolstoy too. Each someone with a rare wisdom about the meaning of life in the world. The most important questions are perennial questions asked and asked again, because they matter whether we live in the fifth century or the 21st century, whether we are African or Russian, whether we are men or women, whether we're tinkerers or prime ministers. They're human questions because human beings ask them. To see seamlessly is the hope, perhaps even to see sacramentally, where we have eyes to see where heaven and earth meet, where ora e labora become one, right in the middle of our ordinary lives, lived as they must be in ordinary places. At the end of the day, none of us can live at Lady Lodge for the rest of life, as much as we might wish otherwise. If we're going to have contemplative lives that serve the world, they will have to be lived in the Washington, D.C.s, the Vancouver's, the Austin's, and the Shafter's, as well as the Jakarta's and Bratislava's and the Nairobi's of this world. At least that's, that has to be true for most of us most of the time. May it be so. Well, there it is. Thank, thank you for that. I want to um, use that as a little bit of a, maybe a trampoline to jump back. When I'm asked the question about influential teachers and programs, I go to uh, the American Studies program, and there's some framing and some habits that I took from that program that I still uh, draw upon daily the framing of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I had not had scripture framed 
in a narrative arc that way. And that became very important to me. But other habits like journaling, it, I, I still journal daily. And it was because of that habit that was instilled during that time there. Phrases like working out the logical conclusions of our presuppositions to the nth degree without flinching. I know you said that in class, but I think there was someone else who framed that. And I would love to give that person proper credit because I probably owe them many, many nickels for as many times as I've used that phrase. Uh That's a good question. A good memory, Scott. Yeah. It's actually an image and almost almost a phrase I learned when I had dropped out of the university when I was 20. Spent a couple of years living in communes in the U.S. and in Europe. But I made my way eventually to a place called Labrie in Europe. And uh, the man who was the co-founder with his wife, uh, Francis Schaeffer, often spoke about um, working out the logical conclusion of one's presuppositions. Mm. And that intrigued me and it pushed me and informed me. And, and uh, that's where I first began to think in those terms, Scott. Um, one of the wonders of my own life, you know, because it's most of my life later. Um, but this past year, when the publisher of Schaefer's best-known work, The God Who Was There, mm-hmm. was considering putting out a 50th anniversary edition of the book, I got asked to write the foreword for it. Oh. It was really kind of a wonder, thinking, well, I could have asked a lot of other people to do this, but I'm very glad to try to do it. And so it came out a couple of months ago, but in many ways I felt like it was a, sort of a wonderful sort of look back into my own life and the ways I had been formed by my experience there and, and, of course, so many others have thousands all over the world. I was able to pull my American Studies program uh, notebook off the shelf. I still have it. And in the front cover written in Sharpie was lines from Creed, uh, mm-hmm. a Stephen Turner uh, mm-hmm. poem, Bright as a Light, Sharp as a Razor. And it goes, we believe that man is essentially good it's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will adjust. History will alter. We believe there is no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. Um, I want to thank you for, I guess, turning us on to that poem and and his work. Um, I'm wondering, 30 years since introducing that to a bunch of bright-eyed students, how that uh, words, how that creed still shows up in your walks? Yes, like it's a good question, Scott. I still think about Steve Turner and his work and in the wonders of history, he and I have become friends and colleagues over the years, and, um, which at the time when I gave you that poem, I didn't know him other than through his poetry. Hmm. Clearly, the poem is particularly born of a, a time in history. Uh, there are references to you know, Russia and arm, arms races and things like that. But I would say that almost completely, apart from a few moments like that, the poem is still as relevant today as it was then, um, it seems to me. Uh, you could change a word here and there, perhaps, I suppose. But, you know, I am one, for example, who doesn't believe that we have moved into a postmodern world. I think we live in a, a modernizing and postmodernizing world where there's a mm-hmm. dynamic push and shove between those two cultural impulses all the time. 
Um, if you think about those last words which you quoted to us about, you know, reality adapting accordingly, um, no, <laughs> I think that all of us would have been surprised by how much that would have been pushed out into the forefront of mind and heart and cultural consciousness, you know, in the in 1980 or whatever it was when we read that, 1980s at least. Um, but to see that where we are in the year 2020, you know, it seems like how could you even how could you even question it? the idea that in fact you can make up the world you want to live in. Yeah. And uh, that seems to be the air we breathe culturally. And that's clearly, you know, if the thesis that you know that I long live with, the artists get there first. Um, and uh, to see that Steve Turner was touching and feeling the world that was being born a long time ago now, relatively speaking. Um, and it's even more so today. So I, I think those words are still as in our faces today as they were some years ago. Yeah, and the the one last thing I had in in my notebook here, and I think it it may even be more pertinent today, given the context of the realities of living in a in a pandemic and what that may mean in terms of physical or social distancing, wanting to be connected, drawing from our sources for our uh, strength and imagination. Um, I have the last thing in my notebook, and it's a juxtaposition that I drew with arrows going around each other. So I'm not trying to present this as an unnecessary duality, but it actually may be a, a continuum. In one corner, I have do the right thing. The other corner, I have carpe diem. And you gave a, a lecture framing those at that time, again, referring to Spike Lee's film and then the movie that... Uh, um, that had Robin Williams, which now just blanked my mind. Um, <laughs> Dead Poet Society. There it is. Yeah. So in in that role, especially today, do the right thing, carpe diem. Could 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 you take us a little bit down memory lane and and, and contextualize that talk a little bit? That's, I've not thought about it for all the years since you yeah. were there, Scott. So let me just think about it here. But. Um. I mean, I think that both Spike Lee and Robin Williams and the screenwriter for Dead Poet Society are grasping for something which can make sense of how it feels to be alive in the world. Yeah. Um, neither do the right thing nor carpe diem exist on their own. They're not big enough for that. Uh, they need rootedness you know, in deeper stories about who we are as human beings and what human life is that actually all about? So I think that they are sort of catchphrases, they're, imagery, they're images, they have power by themselves in some ways, but they're not big enough by themselves, you know, to, to capture the range and depth and richness of responsibility that we have in the world. So um, I do think that years later, thinking about those, those ideas and, uh, um, you know, I mean, this isn't meant to be modeling at all because life is too important to be modeling about. But yeah. think about the sorrow of Dead Poet Society before the film was all over. Um, and then to think about the tragedy and sorrow of Robin Williams' own life, you realize that, you know, to seize the day just isn't enough by itself um, to forge and form a, a good life. Yeah. So this is my last step in a walk back and I have right in front of me a piece of paper that says foundations unit two, December, 1990 discussion guide, hope faces power in Christian existence today by Stanley Hauerwas. Number one, 
There is a difference between hope and optimism, asserts Howard Watts. What is it? In what sense is this true? Optimism leads to cynicism, question mark. So I'm turning the tables. I've got the notes on how I answered it, but I'm wondering, Stephen, in what sense is it true, the difference between hope and optimism, particularly given what we're living through today? Mm-hmm. So it's a good question, Scott. Of course it well, is. Um, well, it was your question. <laughs> if you do think about it, of course. I've not thought about it like that for a while. Um, um, well, I remember reading that essay by Howard Wass, of course, a long time ago and being taken by it. We could, you know, disagree over whether he reads Thomas More rightly or not, but the essay is about Thomas More, uh, you know, once better known for the Man for All Seasons film that won so many Academy Awards, but clearly centuries ago for being basically the Attorney General of, you know, the British Empire. And, uh, um, maybe more recently for his part in Wolf Hall, that British TV series. Um, and history reads him differently, and I'm not finally sure what to make of him. But Harawas's point was that uh, Thomas More was formed by the virtue of hope. Mm-hmm. And he argued that hope was actually a virtue formed by the truth of the world, the truth about who we are as human beings, the truth about the world we live in. And so because it was a virtue formed by, out of truth, um, Thomas More wasn't finally surprised by or shaken by the conflict with the king over whether he could get married again or not. Um, wasn't even finally you know, swayed by his own uh, you know, having to face the executioner's acts um, because Harawas argued he held on to his integrity was the point he was making because it was a virtue formed by truth. And Harawas argues that that's different than optimism, because optimism, he argues, is a false virtue. It's a, a story about who we are and how we live that's actually born of a lie about the way the world is and, and who we are. And optimism ine- inevitably inevitably leads to cynicism, mm. because you eventually realize, of course, that all things won't turn out well all the time. And I was giving this to you as students who'd come to Washington, D.C. and to Capitol Hill to think about in your last couple of weeks with us, because I wanted you to think through, okay, I may have come here for all sorts of hopes and dreams about what I might do to shape history, uh, which we wanted you to hold on to with holy humility, uh, but realizing that, you know, that if you were going to leave the program marked by truth, by the truth about who God is and who we are and how we live in the world, it'd have to be by hope not by optimism, because we didn't want you to be, you know, 20, 21-year-old optimist <laughs> in history because you're so smart and so you know, serious about things. But how would you actually sustain a vocation to care about the way the world is, not to be, over time? And we realized that hope would have to actually, you know, be the virtue that was forming you. Um, just a little footnote about all this, but Harawas, of course, was quite skeptical of me because he and I were corresponding in those years. Oh, about um, uh, what we were doing in Washington, D.C., because, of course, he was sort of this strange amalgam of Texas Methodist and Notre Dame Catholic and, you know, and you know, somewhere along the way, Anabaptist, too. And uh, um, so he was sort of skeptical of, you know, of Christians being in Washington, D.C. to care about history. And sometimes he would poke me and press me, and I would respond and give him something else to look at. And finally one day he wrote me a letter when letters were actually still being written to people and you got them in the mail. And I still have the letter, but he said, Steve, you know, 
I've been listening to you for a long time, watching your work for years now. I just want to say that I actually commend the work you're doing. I actually believe in what you're doing. Just the questions you're giving the students to ask and answer, the readings you're giving them to ponder, those are the very things that we ought to be thinking through as moderns living in the complex bureaucracies of the you know, 20, 20th century, 21st century. So it's still a letter that I prize, and I'm glad he could finally see that because we were doing our best with you, Scott, and with all the, your contemporaries to, give, make, to ask you questions which were important questions to think through. So now let's walk up to um, current day. Um, again, this is learning matters of bridge of practice. The other thing we like to do is pull the, the curtain back or invite people into the kitchen a little bit on, on how a, a, a professor or faculty cooks up a course. I'm wondering if you could just walk us through one of the courses, one of the courses you may be currently teaching and the, 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 the process you go through to come up with the learning objectives or the learning activities and the hopes that you would have your learners take away. T take us into your process a little bit. Sure. Um, I'm just finishing right now in these very weeks uh, a course called The Gospel and Culture. And it's a course that every year has about 25 students in it. And that's how many are with me this semester. And it is a course, on the one hand, open to anybody. Uh, you have to have a certain number of prerequisites to get into it, but it's also a course that students, a regent, um, take on their way out of the school, on their way out into the rest of life. And uh, so I have chosen to, to take up this question, the relation of the gospel to culture, and uh, give the students a whole bunch of different windows into looking at that that challenge. Mm -hmm. um, we start with a book by Jean Beth K. Elstein, the political philosopher at the University of Chicago. And it's a book looking at the challenge of forming identity in the modern world. And um, she was died a few years ago, but she was a remarkably bright and thoughtful and eloquent and, you know, important figure speaking about the meaning of belief in a, in a pluralizing society and world. And, uh, but I give them a book, you know, we, we, each, week there's a, each week there's a different book to read, essentially. And I try week by week to bring somebody into class who will incarnate the questions of the class. So uh, another week we had a book by Sherry Turkle, the MIT professor. And I chose this year to read, have them read the book Alone Together, which is her looking at, you know, the phenomena we, that all of us know keenly and maybe painfully of being alive in the 21st century of being in a room full of people all looking at their cell phones. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, they're all connected as they mm. are, um, but all very alone at the same time. And with insight and you know depth and range, which is surprising because Turkle's very, very bright about these things. She looks at this phenomena that is ours. And so I you know, had them also watch the film Her that week. Uh, the Joaquin Phoenix uh, film and about the downloading of a app which allows him to be companioned 24 hours a day, of course. And uh, he picks, you know, a woman to be his companion and he wakes up to her voice and goes to sleep with her voice. And in the middle of the night, he has her voice and through the day he has her voice and she gets to know him in a certain kind of unusual intimacy. And, you know, he's satisfied by all that he imagines to be true now, this new relationship with this app, uh, 
that he has downloaded. Um, and the great sorrow of the story, of course, is that the moment he realizes that she has the same relationship with over 5,000 other men too. Um, and uh, it's just heartbreaking to him. And so I want them to, to see not just how the MIT professors, of course, you know, work this out with insight for all of us, but how even the cultural imagery we live with, you know, in the films of our day play this out in sometimes very poignant and painful ways. Um, we spent a week on global business and the marketplace. And I called it, can M&M save the world? Um, <laughs> I do some work for the Mars Corporation, which makes M&Ms, and have been a part of a project for 15 years now called The Economics of Mutuality, and which is really a surprisingly bold effort to rethink the way money meet, matters in the world and how business is done in the world. And It's a surprising story, actually, but I invited one of my friends, an executive for the Mars Corporation, to come join us for the evening in class in a Skype conversation. And um, been a week on vocation, and of course, that's a great interest of mine. And, and I invited a young friend of mine who's no longer as young as she once was. She's more like you, Scott, but not quite, I suppose. Her name is Jenna Lee Nardella. I met her when she was a 20-year-old. And she and I were involved in starting a group called the Bloodwater Mission and um, trying to address in the early 20, 20, uh, 21st century the impact and heartache of AIDS and HIV in Africa. And, and uh, she joined us for a while that night. And... and uh, We've looked at politics, we've looked at the arts, we've looked at, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, read Leslie Newbigin's book, um, um, Proper Confidence, which is a remarkably titled volume, looking at the challenge of honest belief in a pluralizing world. And, and uh, um, this, this week, we had our last bit of formal class of the semester, The Responsibility of Knowledge in a Knowledge Economy. And uh, we were reading, surprisingly perhaps, um, some of the short stories of Wendell Berry and uh, um, from his book, That Distant Land. And I wanted them to think about these students from Hong Kong, from Mexico, from Brazil, from Germany, from all over the world, actually, in my class. I wanted them to think through what is it possible to learn from this man, this pro prophet poet who lives on the banks of the Kentucky River uh, and writes essays and stories for the whole world. And why is it somebody from Hong Kong and from, you know, and from Berlin can actually find himself, herself drawn to the stories in a remarkably similar way as they were this week reading these stories. And yet they're so far away in their own social experience from Kentucky and from Mendel Berry. And of course, a good story does that. But I wanted to think through, you know, what does it mean to be related to people and to place in this modernizing world? Um, I invited a friend of mine from Seattle, uh, uh, technologist by long training and practice, Uli Chi, to join us and uh, talk about his own life and his work and how somebody who lives within the the you know the reality of the knowledge economy because yep. that's been his work. Um, how is it possible to to have a life which flourishes actually, which is a flourishing life, an honest life, a true life in the midst of the world in which we live? So, in all these ways, I've been trying. I could mention more classes, more evenings, but those are the, some, some of them. But looking at, you know, what are you going to do with all these courses you've taken at Regent College the last two or three or four years? How are you going to work them out in the real world, which will be yours to engage? Um, so that's some of what I've done for this class this semester. How has the, the shift, if there was a shift, from the face-to-face the -face course to a remote online 
environment. How, how did you manage that shift? And, and, and this goes back, I just found another thing in my notebook that I, I quote you, and I'm not sure if it was you or not. As you imagine a group of 20, 21 year olds all in the same place, relationships typically comes up at some level. And you wrote, you said a phrase, being just friends isn't second best. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've been putting that in the context, online learning isn't second best, but it is a shift. How, how have you managed th- th- that, 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 that shift? Uh-huh. Probably terribly, Scott, probably terribly. <laughs> um, I didn't want to make the shift, of course. I yeah. was chafing against it, but pretty quickly the whole world changed in a matter of a few days. All of a sudden what we were not going to do and what I was not going to do was what I was going to have to do you know, to keep going here. And so I, you know, had a quick tutorial one morning from one of the technology people at Regent College. And he said, do this, and do that, and make sure you do this. And I said, okay, okay, okay. And I was pretty sure I forgot all that he said a few hours later. But uh, but that night, you know, we went on to our Zoom platform and, you know, had class together. And, you know, and by the great grace of God, you know, and you know, some of the students who wrote me that night and said, it went better than I expected it would. It went, it went well, actually. <laughs> it did? Oh, I'm not sure it did, but if you think yeah. so, then thanks be to God, really. Um, so I prefer not to do it, Scott. I mean, I, I think one of the challenges, even of the, a wonderful platform like Zoom, is that you can see a few faces on your screen, but you can't see, as I am wanting to do, to the whole classroom and to see how faces are, faces are how hearts are, because, of course, the face is with it to the heart, but how are people are responding to what's going on and wanting to get nuances, which are hard to pick up in the same way, you know, on a screen. But, you know, I mean, I would say that some of the things get done. Um, not everything gets done, and, you know, we're having to live with that right now, and I'm not a Luddite if I don't, at any point in my life, I don't think. Um, but I try to keep up and figure out and, you know, this morning grading papers, you know, and I have been a stickler for having a paper, a paper made, written on paper on my lap to grade it for the years of my life. Yep, yep. Well, it isn't a good or evil kind of a thing. Of course it's not, but I've wanted to do that. Um, well, I'm having to grade papers online now, and I know people have done that for probably a long time, some places, but I've just chosen not to do that. But so we're kind of just trying to pick up and follow and make sure that we're, you know, attending. And, and uh, so I hope it isn't forever and ever that we have to have online classes, but I'm doing that and students seem to be still engaged in a, in a different kind of a way and hope they're not losing too much. So. Yeah. I find, you know, what's hardest for me in, in, in making the shift is that screen mediated, um, conversation and connection is so disembodying and there's so much information one picks up when you're in and amongst people, right. you know, how's the feel or the, you know, are the jokes landing? Are the, are, are the students getting it? Um, that, that reaction is so important if we're going to move from just transmission to transaction or possibly even transformation in the relationship building with we're doing. So how, to become really intentional in these screen mediated settings in order to create connection, taking a moment to breathe, um, making sure that my direct instruction or my demonstration is sequenced with knowledge checks or conversations or breakout rooms. 
and really trying to be really intention and keeping that connection there. I'm working on an article right now that I'm calling Zoom fatigue syndrome or mitigating against resting Zoom face. And it's Somebody, hard. Someone needs to write that article, Scott. I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah. And, and it's not easy. But I also find that in some ways there's affordances, particularly with those students who I find are um, less vocal are now finding a chance to shine in these learning environments. So it's a, you know, there's, there's doors closed, doors open up and, you know, we're really working through the protocols of what it means to be engaging because of this condition, which we hope and pray is, um, is, well, there will be transformations as we live through it, but what is life going to look like three months, six months, 12 months, 12 months from now? Um, right. We we have guesses, but I think um, I, I think I wrote one of the smartest emails that I've written in I don't know twenty to forty years of email, and I and I wrote this to two faculty members that I was working with, and it went, you know, I don't know the answer to your question, but I hope that when we get to talk with each other tomorrow, that together we might be able to come up with an answer. And the reason I say that was smart of me is. I don't think I would have phrased that that way a few weeks ago. I think I would have given an answer that may or may not have been on point, but just mm-hmm. stopping and saying, no, I don't know the answer, but I think together mm-hmm. we might be able to uh, forge a way forward. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing that, Scott. Yeah. yeah. So as we move uh, from the courses that you're teaching, I'm wondering you know, I know you have the, the, the book has just come out, um, The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love, Learning, Worship, and Work. Um, I'm wondering, are, what are some of the other projects that uh, you're working on now that you'd like to share? So about two weeks ago, I had a letter from an editor of a journal at the University of Notre Dame, and it came out of the blue, and I didn't know him, and he didn't really know me, but he said, I hear that you think about Camus. Ah, you teach about Camus. Would you be willing to write an essay for us on Camus and the coronavirus? And uh, on the one hand, I sighed at the question, <laughs> um, but I also was intrigued by it because I don't think he, he didn't know this, of course, he could have known it. But in this course, I was just describing the gospel and culture one of the evenings and one of the weeks we take up the book, The Plague by Camus. Mm-hmm. I called the class in that evening, The Great Conundrum. And the course is called The Gospel and Culture. One of my arguments is that the great conundrum for everybody who takes this kind of stuff seriously is trying to work out what do we do with a broken, broken, wounded, wounded world? How do we respond to suffering and and wrong in the world? And uh, that would be a make or break, you know, uh, reality for us in the years of our lives. How we do that. So we spent a week, you know, earlier in the semester in February on Camus and and the Plague, having no idea, of course, because at that point, Wuhan seemed to long far ways away from where I was living, and there was a Wuhan problem, and I'm sorry they had it, but it wasn't my problem, really. Right. And then, you know, in the course of the days and weeks that followed, all of a sudden, you know, slowly it emerged and thinking, you're going to close the border between the U.S. and Canada, and they're going to close down University of British Columbia and Regent College, and the whole city of Vancouver is going to be closed down, and this is all true all over the face of the earth? What happened? You know? Yeah. Um, so the question was, would you write an essay for us? So I wrote an essay over the course of the next week and a half, I suppose, just thinking through, you know, what Camus te- still has to teach us about, in his novel, The Plague, 
that might be relevant to us as we all have to live into the plague of what we've called COVID-19. Yeah. So that's been a recent project that came out last week. Um, and uh, um, and I'm, you know, even this morning, grading papers as I was, uh, I was also have a little file in my you know, iPhone, um, my notes section, where I'm taking notes for a book that's, I think, being born right now mm. in my heart. Um, and I could talk about it at length with you, but maybe the short version is this, Scott. Um, the last essay in this new book, The Seamless Life, is about the proximate. And I've rooted this reflection in the Cathedral of Notre Dame and Victor Hugo's great story about the hunchback of Notre Dame. But uh, the last chapter of the book, The Visions of Vocation, is also uh, about the proximate. Mm. And... Um, the proximate for me has become a very important word because what it argues is this, that um, living as we do between the now but the not yet in this life and in history of the world, um, we either can choose between deciding on one hand, well, you know, I'm smart and I'm ambitious and I take things seriously and, and I'll get it done. Yep. It's not just who I am, really. You know, it'll be like it's supposed to be because I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens, of course, which is why the, you know, Thomas More and Hope versus Power story still brings true for me, is that even being smart and ambitious and serious doesn't mean that all public justice will get done in this life. No. Doesn't mean that all the hopes you had and promises you made in getting married will make this marriage be a perfect, completely perfect marriage, um, part of a perfect and completely perfect love. Uh, so how do you live amidst the ruins? You know, yeah. holding on to faith and hope and love uh, at the same time. And so what I want to, what's being born right now is this idea of a book um, on the proximate. Uh, and uh, since you're a lover of film and the arts as you are, Scott, I would just let this be rooted in the two films that you would know about by Terrence Malick. Oh, yeah. Seven years ago or so, it was The Tree of Life, mm -hmm. which for eyes, with those eyes to see is, of course, a story of, that meta-narrative that you talked about a few minutes ago um, of creation, fall, redemption, and conservation. He doesn't name those moments in history, but clearly if you have eyes to see, that's the story he's telling. Um, and then more recently, this winter, the film Hidden Life came out, and it's about one life. You know, it's just about a man named, you know, uh, an Austrian farmer who, you know, makes, you know, very difficult decisions in the face of Nazism pressing itself upon the Austrian people. And I won't ruin the story for anybody, but it's a remarkable story. Uh, but I wrote an essay after that. I watched that thinking about the relationship between the two films, the tree of life and hidden life and arguing that for everybody, uh, every one of us, there is this tension of trying to hold together a meta narrative that can make sense of our narratives um, and those two words were important in yeah. the essay and they're important in my own thinking. But how do we, you know, how we see the world uh, shapes how we live in the world. But of course, it's also true that how we live in the world shapes how we see the world. Um, so the book would be somehow wanting to explore people I've met all over the world in the last years of my life, whether in Central Europe this past fall or Australia, you know, in the summertime or Indonesia last year or just walk around the world with me, the people who are honest people with honest, you know, hope who have to somehow make peace with the proximate, with, yeah. you know, not things not being as they want them to be. 
Uh, I was asked this fall to go to Central Europe for a week or so to speak on. So 30 years after the Velvet Revolution, um, where Havel and his friends argued for a brand new way to live in the world. And uh, they were not romantics at all because they'd all suffered terribly themselves, but they offered, you know, a different way to, to be alive in the world, politically, socially, economically, culturally. Well, 30 years later in Slovakia and Czech Republic and other nations in Central Europe, it hasn't all happened, you know, heaven hasn't come to earth. And the question of these good people that I met with in the fall for several days was, they said, well, come and speak to us about the meaning of vocation for the common good 30 years after the revolution. Yeah. And uh, I came back just thinking, you know, here they are with people of honest, honest hope. And they worked hard and they believed seriously in the most important things. And yet they're people who have to make peace with the proximate, don't they? With something which is true and honest and real, but it's not everything either. Um, yeah. And the challenge of doing that seems to me to be quite a universal one. So what I want to write about is, how that gets worked out in the world. Well, I think that's what we'll have to look forward to because the question I wanted to ask after reading that last chapter was how do we make peace with approximate? So I think that's something that's being born and something to, to really uh, imagine ourselves into. What well, is for all of us, Scott, of course it is for all of us. So, Steve, we're now entering into the phase where we get to spin the Yara wheel. Are you ready? I'm ready if you are. Here we go. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? Okay, it landed on, what is your greatest extravagance? <laughs> well, that's such a good question, Scott. Um, I had a cup of, of chai tea this afternoon, uh, <laughs> and I actually ordered this from a place in in San Francisco, California, I've been doing this for some years now. I buy them by sort of like the pound bags of this stuff. It's called Rio's. Um, and uh, it's just very tasty, really. Nice. I mean, I, I'm not a connoisseur of most things, but, you know, I do, uh, throughout the days of my life, I do choose to be in every day that I possibly can with a cup of Earl Grey tea. And I'm pretty careful what Earl Grey tea has to be. I actually travel with Earl Grey tea bags in my backpack. <laughs> I want to make sure I have a tea that I want to need. Yeah. Um, but about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, I you know, am glad to open up my you know, chai tea bag from Rio. And uh, they make a pretty good cup of chai tea. And I didn't realize that it'd be possible to live my life without that, but I'm glad I get to live my life with that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Access to those things that bring us a little, what I call gigantic moment of the soul, I think are important. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I have a friend who writes for the Seattle Times, Naomi. She wrote an article last week that said there's an epidemic going on in Seattle. People are actually starting to help other people. And I'm formulating this question isn't quite there, but I'm going to try it out. Um, how do we move toward a mutual slash shared slash creative economy 
without reworking and creatively shifting what counts as currency away from extraction models to a more regenerative social imaginings. So that's a question that I'm framing and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. It's probably worth a long walk with you, Scott. But yeah. Let me just try this. Uh, I would say, I mean, I'm glad that your friend for the reporter for the Seattle newspaper sees that, but I would probably, you know, without wanting to be, you know, mean about it, probably say in some places and sometimes that may be true. Um, I think that human beings are glorious ruins wherever we are found in the face of the earth. Um, and sometimes there may be more glory to be seen and we can say, well, that's great. That's wonderful. And thank you. And I'm just glad that happened actually. And sometimes you think you did that. You did what? You said what? You know, and that happens to every day. Really. I was corresponding with some friends in Ireland today who were asking me a question, even though I live in Vancouver, British Columbia now, but they know that I'm principally an American, but they were saying, we just can't figure out what's going on in America right now. You know, and they were actually, you know, aghast at sort of the gross political, politically born selfishness, which seems to, that surprises them, you know, being where they are and where they live and how they live, really. Um, now, is that everybody all the time? No. But clearly there are faces that every day when we wake up, we think, you said what? You did what? And you're going to ask us of us to do, to do that? You think, well, that isn't right, really. Um, so for me, it would be more that sometimes in some places there may be, you know, signs in this push-come-to-shove moment of COVID-19 where people are kind of being pushed to, you know, yes, I'll think about you and I'll be careful about careful for your sake. And I'm glad for that. And we all should be more that way, which is why, as you know, Scott, I've spent so much time thinking about the idea of common grace for the common good. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really central uh, human flourishing, actually. Um, but I would just come back again to that little bit of a story I told about my work with the Mars Corporation, because I think it's actually a good model for this. I never ever would say that heaven comes to earth in this project called the Economics of Mutuality. But it's a, it's a well-named project, the Economics of Mutuality. Yeah. Born of a company which, of course, sells billions of dollars of M&Ms and other things to the world. You know, all local Ben's rice products are you know, Mars Corporation products and half the dog food in the world is, you know, Mars Corporation product. And, and uh, but it was really born of a question by one of the owners of the Mars Corporation 15 years ago, how much money should we make? And I remember sitting with the chief economist one morning at a hotel in Washington, D.C., looking back and I said, why, why are you asking that question? And explained it to me. I said, but, but, but why? I mean, and I was pushing and pushing to know where this all came from. And, and, uh, and I won't go into the full story here. You could look, up, look this up if you wanted to follow anybody listening right now. But it's, just look up the Economics of Mutuality, Mars Corporation. And uh, it really is a serious, though audaciously sounding project trying to rethink the marketplace of the world uh, right now. And to argue, in fact, that, you know, that Milton Friedman wasn't right because he couldn't be right. Right. And he made the argument that the sole purpose of business is to maximize shareholder profit. Um, And when I was pressing that first breakfast conversation with Friedman and asking questions that I was asking, the chief economist for Mars said, it's not that profit doesn't matter, of course, to a business because it has to matter, but it it isn't a big enough question. That's the only question you're asking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that began to draw me in more seriously, and I began to get quite involved in all this. And I could say, I'll say two more things right now about it, and you could ask any more if you want to. But yeah. after five or six years of very secretly working away at this project inside the Mars Corporation, the decision was to go public with it. 
And, uh, but along the way of, you know, all the work being done internally of this, I had given the two executives I was working with an essay by Wendell Berry um, called The Two Economies. And I want to wonder the argument he makes, rather than say it's a very important essay. And I was asked, well, could we talk to him? Could we talk to Barry? So we all flew down to Kentucky one day and spent the day talking to Barry on his farm and on his porch and having dinner with him and his wife. And at the end of the day, he said this to us, you know, if you want to make money for a day, for a year, you have to ask certain questions, but you want to make money for a hundred years, you have to ask other questions. And those words have stuck, of course, in my heart ever since then, because it's true, isn't it? You know, yeah. and I think what he was realizing was this project that Mars was taking on was more of a hundred year project, um, asking hundred year questions. How do you sustain profitability over time? Um, and, uh, you know, after, you know, six, seven years of working at this very hard, trying to make sure the numbers were right, because for a company where billions of dollars are honestly at stake, the numbers have to be right. Um, we decided to take this public and offer this as a, a academic, you know, program. And uh, MIT wanted it, and Harvard Business School wanted it, but the choice was to go to Oxford University's Said School of Business yep. to embed the economics and mutuality into their curriculum. So now the students at Oxford study this project as part of their education in business. Um, and uh, and I would say that it's put moving forward. It's all over the world now. People are asking serious questions about it, and in some ways, realizing that Friedman's short-sightedness, you know, hasn't really allowed most people to flourish. Some do flourish, of course, and they move to Nantucket and live, you know, nice lives for the rest of their life. Most people don't flourish if that's the way it is. And so this project that I've been giving my own self to is actually arguing for how would we systemically critique the global economy of the 21st century and offer an honest alternative. Uh, over the recent weeks, I've got to work with uh, faculty throughout the, the campus at, at Trinity Western and particularly the School of Nursing. And if I start thinking about the framing of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and the story of kingdom coming, and it's, Maybe it's flipping it. Maybe it's turning the tables. But the language that they shared with me is moving from thinking rooted in pathogenesis, which leads to a disease state, to a salutogenesis, which is flourishing. And if we can frame our work as salutogenesis with the, the, the goal of flourishing, what would that look like? And I think the um, economies of mutuality – create pathways to move in that direction. And I would agree, Scott. I mean, I, I'm not a romantic about anything yeah. at all, really, at all. I just <laughs> no, don't. I think I'd go Dostoevsky. I think you're about to say, you know, humans are ungrateful bipeds. <laughs> you know? They are that, of course. Uh, but I would say when I think about what you heard from the faculty there at Trinity Western and what I believe in and work for in my own life is what I'm content to call signposts. Mm. Uh, signposts of the way things ought to be in the world and realizing that we don't get better than that in this life. Heaven doesn't fully come to earth in this life, but we long for the kingdom to come. We long for signposts of the way things ought to be, to be actually the way things are in our present experience. So I'm glad when I see a signpost, I will honor that and talk about it and, you know, work to remember that. And, and that's, uh, the way that I understand the best work we get to do is to to see signposts come into being for a time and a place. 
Yep. Well, Stephen, I've really enjoyed our imaginative walk together today and looking forward to a physical beach walk, hopefully in the not too distant future. I'm wondering if you might be able to share um, where folks might find your your writings, your books, or uh, a website that you would like to let people know about? You're so generous, Scott Macklin, so I, of course, will do that. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you can go all kinds of places, and that's in the global marketplace. We can do that pretty easily. But if I'm just going to choose a place to look, I would say, you know, the best bookseller in maybe North America, at least in America, but maybe North America, mm-hmm. is a man named Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Pennsylvania. Yeah. He actually literally serves the whole world in the selling of books. I had a letter today from somebody actually in Central Europe who said, I got a book today, you know, from Hearts and Minds. And he said, I wanted just to tell you that it came and, you know, thank you. And uh, so I know that he actually does serve the whole world with his books. But he, you know, unlike the algorithms, which, you know, uh, Amazon puts upon us, um, sure that we want to read this book and this book and this book too, um, and they're anonymous you know, service of us, uh, Byron actually will care about who you are and be interested in the books you want to read and help you to read another book, in a, you know, later. And and so to keep it all human, which is what we all ought to be working for, uh, Byron's marketplace through his bookstore allows us to, to keep being human as we buy good books in the world. Yeah, I, I purchased from there and um, he, his superpower is human curation and, you know, curation with the root word of cure, which is a a priestly function Mm. to care for one's souls. He's someone who's full of care, but cares for many souls. And he knows more about good books than anybody else anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephen, again, someone I'd also put in the superpower of, of being full of care and caring for one's souls. Um, thanks for the, the walk back and the walk forward, looking forward to some more conversations. And uh, I hope you and your, your family um, are well during these times. Thank you so much, Scott, and, and God bless you and yours. Thank you. You've been listening to Learning Matters, A Bridge to Practice, and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm-hmm.